Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, it's terrific to see you this Sunday morning. If you were here last Sunday and you're back again this Sunday, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I wasn't sure you'd come back, but here you are. That's good. That's good. We are in a series, Stewardship in a Strange New World, and we've looked thus far at uh, stewarding God's truth. We've looked also at stewarding our children in a world that is uh, increasingly hostile and challenging to our faith. And we've looked at stewarding wealth in a world that tells us constantly that wealth, money and possessions are ours and that we're meant to use them for our own comfort, our own well-being and for our own pleasure. So we've been examining that and we wanna go back and look one more time at the matter of stewarding wealth. So I invite you to take a Bible, look on your smartphone, or to join me on screen as we look together at Luke 16, verses 10 through 13. Now, the context for our uh, passage is a parable. It's the parable, Jesus' parable of the dishonest manager. He tells this parable directly to his disciples because he has a word specifically for believers. He's giving it to them for their benefit. There's some things he does not want them to miss when it comes to wealth. Two things in particular that he wants them to see. He wants them to to see wealth rightly and he also wants them to use wealth rightly. So how they understand it and how they use it are really the target that uh, Jesus has in mind as he unpacks this parable. How they use wealth, money and possessions, and how they view money and possessions. So while we're not going to review the parable this morning because we covered it last week, we do want to look together and at and, and a recap of what we learned. There are two overarching ideas pulsating through this parable that are seen here, but also elsewhere in the gospel. And they are these. Number one, that the right use of wealth or the right view of wealth rather is that it belongs to God as master and is given only to believers to use as he directs. The right use of wealth is to shrewdly invest today's wealth in tomorrow's future like the manager in the parable did, except that the the, uh, dishonest manager used it for himself and for his immediate future where Christ is calling his disciples to take their wealth, use it shrewdly, not just for their lives, but for the lives of others and with eternity in view. So we said last week, that a person outside of Christ will take a look at who is shrewd, will look at their, their money, will look at their possessions, and then will strategize how they can take that money and possessions and make the most of it all of their lives until they lose it when they die. Their view is very limited. They see the present, they see what they have at hand, and then they plan strategically to use that for their own personal advantage in the main until they die. That's their window uh, of view. That's what they see. Whereas for a follower of Christ, the approach is completely different. The follower of Christ also, Jesus says, is to be shrewd, is to look at what they have and strategize to, to find and to think about how they can leverage it for the advantage that would come to them in the future, but their advantage is different. They see it, they, they acknowledge their wealth, whatever that is, whatever money and possessions they have. They look not to the end of their lives, but because Christ has promised them an eternity with him, they look past the end of their lives, recognizing that the end of life for them is but a door into eternity. They look past the end of life into eternity and they ask the question, how can I take How can I leverage the wealth that God has given me for his glory, for the good of others, and then ultimately as well for my own advantage in eternity? How can I 
make the most of my worldly wealth for other worldly ends. That is the way a believer is meant to think and approach and use wealth. Now, I want you to see then that the question that comes to a believer is simply this. The question that a believer should always be asking is this, how can I make the best use of the money and possessions I have for God, for others, and for my eternal good before I die and before money and possessions have no more value? And that's why Jesus follows this parable with a command, as we saw in verse nine, where he says to believers, use your wealth now to make friends so that when it fails or runs out or becomes useless at death, that same earthly wealth will result in heavenly benefits. Use it so that you make eternal friends, so that when you step over from death to life, as Jesus promised, any of those that you impacted and you influenced with your wealth to bring them to faith in Christ will be there to welcome you as you come into that new life with them and with Christ. There will be those, we said last week, who, who uh, and this is one of the great joys of a believer, who will, who will have others who are there because of the investment they made, there because they sacrificed, there because they, that believer surrendered. There will be those who will be there effectively to say, thank you for being so faithful. Thank you for helping me find my way here. Every believer's wealth, we said as, a, as the point of last week's parable, every believer's wealth here is a temporary opportunity to help change someone else's destiny and store up true treasure for themselves in eternity. But there's something more that Jesus wants his disciples to, uh, to know and to see, something else he wants us to know and to see. And so following his command to use wealth to make friends for eternity, we find Jesus spelling out what this view of wealth and the use of wealth actually requires in this life. So let's look at that together. Verses 10, 11 and 12 and 13. Jesus says, listen now, he's given the command, make friends, make eternal friends using earthly wealth. He goes on to say, verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, and remember we said unrighteous here does not mean it's ill-gotten gain, it means it is worldly wealth. If you then have not been faithful in the worldly wealth that you had, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you haven't been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. Let's pray together. Father, now, as we gather around your word, we're asking your Holy Spirit to speak to us. We're asking, Lord, that your truth might uh, become clear to us. You are a generous God. You are a, uh, the God who has shown and proven himself to be so very generous that you would give your very son so that we might have life. We confess this, this morning, Father, that there is no one like you, that your generosity is unmatched, that your willingness to surrender and sacrifice has no equal. And Father, we recognize today as we gather around your word that part of being a follower of Jesus is reflecting this capacity for giving, for sacrificing, for surrendering, and doing it with joy and gladness because of what your surrender in Christ has meant for us. So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to understand, minds to comprehend, and give us a will to act as your word directs this day, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want you to see with me how Jesus actually expands on his parable and his command in verse nine. 
And how beginning with this solemn command in verse nine, and, and then working his way through verses 10 to 13, what Jesus actually does is he lays down three goals, three goals that believers should maintain and aim for as they try to make the best and shrewdest use of the money, possessions, and relationships they have. Those three arching goals are these. He's calling them, he's saying, with your life, aim for generosity, aim for faithfulness, and aim for freedom. Take what I've given you, whatever it is, however it has come to you, take it and use it. Be generous, be faithful, and with it, find freedom. In fact, we can say that Jesus teaches us here that in God's economy, the, 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 uh, the reason to be shrewd is to be generous. The reason to be generous is to be faithful. And the reason to be faithful is to be free. That if we're going to be shrewd, the point of it is to be generous with others. If we're going to be generous, the point of that is to be faithful to God. If we're going to be faithful to God, the point of that is to be free, genuinely free as God designed and desires us to be. So let's unpack these three goals and their lessons today. You'll notice with me in verse nine, let's start there, that the goal of shrewdness is actually generosity. As we saw last week, Jesus gets specific with his application of the parable for his disciples. And he says solemnly, I tell you, and, and, and again, he's not saying I'm making a suggestion. I'm giving you something to think about. He's saying, I'm commanding you. I'm telling you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, because we looked at this last week, we're not gonna do it again, but I do wanna point something out to you right here. The implication behind Jesus' command in verse nine to make friends using whatever wealth believers have is that believers are meant to be, called to be, uh, commanded to be generous. And they're called and commanded, the New Testament teaches us, to be generous to three groups of people for, for three reasons. We're called, we're commanded to be generous first to God, which sounds odd, but, but Paul, Jesus talks about being rich toward God. And uh, this, is, this is really where, where, uh, where the, the, the idea is best captured. You, you think about it, God already owns everything. He created everything. He literally le needs nothing from us. And yet the scripture says, the New Testament teaches that what God wants coming out of his creation, fallen as it is, is a people, a people for himself. In fact, the New Testament says that those who belong to him in Christ are his inheritance, which is a wonderful, wonderful insight, a wonderful truth to think that I am in God's eyes, a treasure that he inherits as a consequence of of the perfect life, the sinless life, the substitutionary death and the resurrection of his son. His son makes me to Christ a treasure that he receives because of Christ. That's a wonderful concept. But he's saying, here's what I want you to do. I'm calling on you, take your wealth and use it to be generous toward God by um, uh, partnering with him in this great endeavor. What is the great endeavor? He's calling out of every generation a people to himself to be his, to belong to him. Those he's calling people to become part of his family, we know is the church. That's his inheritance. So as you're being generous, be generous in such a way that you're partnering with God and giving God what he desires and what he desires is for us to see men and women, boys and girls in our generation give their lives to Christ and become the fathers in Christ. That's the first way. There's a second group and a second, a second goal that comes out of our generosity. When, when uh, Jesus gives us this command in verse nine, he's also calling us to be generous for the sake of the eternal destiny of others. And so he's saying, take and use your wealth, remembering that eternity is a long, long time. Take your, your wealth, your, your money and your possessions and use them strategically to uh, uh, help others hear the gospel so they have an opportunity to respond to it and become the people that God wants. Does that make sense? 
I, I've got to make that investment. If I don't make that investment, then the gospel tends to be hidden. It tends to be covered. It tends to be blocked. And that's why from the very beginning of the church, the church has been sending out pastors and missionaries and lay people. And the call has always been, go share the gospel. And part of our work as a church is funding opportunities for people to hear the gospel understand the gospel and ultimately receive the gospel. And that is the, one of the greatest joys of the Christian life is to, sit, to take the resources you have, use them to that end and see God work in a person's life and make that person his own in Christ. The third group is, is actually a, a surprise. Christ calls us to be generous for our own sake. Now that sounds awfully selfish and you say, that doesn't sound right with everything else you've been teaching us. But in reality, the right use of wealth includes uh, being rich toward God. It includes helping others find their way to Christ. But ultimately, and finally, I should say not ultimately, but finally, it includes uh, uh, investing what we have now, the wealth we have now, in order to receive uh, a greater wealth later. Look at verse 11. Jesus is asking this question. He's asking it uh, pointedly. The other, the person who, who he's speaking of, why should that person do this or that for you, both in 11 and 12, is God himself. But notice, why should he give you greater riches or real riches? Do you see that? true riches. Why? Why should he if you're not faithful with what he's given you now? But the, the implication is that God has real riches for those who will be faithful to him here. He has real riches that will ultimately, he says, verse 12, belong to you there. There are riches, there are rewards that God has. We talked about it last week, heaven's not equal. There will be some who will be more faithful who will have greater reward. All who know Christ will be saved, but not all will have the same Reward. So there are three groups of people, and it's very, very important to see that the generosity Christ is calling us to is to be applied in those three ways. But as we apply this generosity, particularly to others, and that's really the thrust of this, of this parable, as we apply it, it's really, really important, and I want to make this distinction for you. It's really important that this generosity that we show toward others and, and that we, we, we put to, to use in order to help others find their way to Christ is a generosity that comes in two ways and comes in two levels. It is a generosity that is applied not just to meeting their spiritual needs, but there is also this generosity Christ is calling to for others is meant to be applied as well to their physical needs. Now, I want you to see something with me because this was the strategy of Jesus throughout his ministry. If you look at Jesus' ministry, one of the primary ways that he presented himself to the people who, who met him as the savior they needed was first to meet their physical needs in order to, to go on and speak to their spiritual needs. And so what, he ha what you see is this, this habit uh, constantly of first meeting physical needs to prove his power, to prove his person, and then meeting spiritual needs to point them to the eternity that he would win for them on the cross. So this is, this is a beautiful thing. At Center Grove, we love to say this. We love to say that, that we serve the needs of others and we share the gospel of Jesus that we look most like Jesus when we're, we are serving. Oh, that's good. I'm, I'm listening for the staff. I'm not hearing much over there. There's a bunch of staff right over there and I'm just not hearing it. Uh, so let's start over, staff. So at Center Grove, we love to say that we look most like Jesus when we're serving. And we love most like Jesus when we're sharing. Oh, so good. And so our, our method at Center Grove is that we serve to share. The United Way serves, but it doesn't serve in order to share. 
The church of Jesus Christ is going to be concerned with the physical well-being of people, whether they have clothes and food and that kind of thing, but it is always for and ultimately for an eternal end. We are generous with our serving because we want to be generous with our sharing. Exactly right. So last week, we took an impromptu offering. If you were here, you know this. We took an impromptu offering. We, we gathered money to be used by uh, Baptist Relief down in Cape Coral, Florida. They're serving thousands of meals every day. So we just did an impromptu, we did an impromptu offering. And I sprung it on you and I just said, grab an envelope and, and let's go, let's give and let's see what God has done. I'm glad to report to you that uh, as of Thursday, we had given $9,500 toward that effort. And I am so very glad for that. I don't know how many meals that translates to, but that was generous. I didn't ask you to plan on it. I didn't ask you to prepare for it. I just asked you to give and you did. But this is what Baptist Relief does. They will roll into a city that's been hit by a disaster, set up, feed people. But the goal, not just to feed them, it is to share the good news of the gospel of a savior who has come, of sins that can be forgiven, of a new life that can be had, and an eternity that can be made sure. We're called to be generous, to take our money and our possessions, just like Jesus, take everything we have and use it to serve in order to share. So the goal of shrewd giving is to serve generously and give generously so that these eternal friends are made with the wealth that we have. The goal of our, of our shrewdness is generosity. But I want you to see, look in verses 10, 11, and 12, that the goal of our generosity is actually faithfulness. Jesus says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest or unfaithful in a very little is also dishonest or unfaithful in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, worldly wealth that you have, who will, will entrust you or entrust to you the true riches? And this who ultimately, as we see in verse 13, is and if, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's God's, who will give you, will God give you that which is your own in eternity? Those are the questions. Jesus here makes it clear that the shrewdness of the unjust steward that he's calling for doesn't include the unfaithfulness of that steward. Shrewdness with wealth and people doesn't require, Jesus is saying, unfaithfulness. In fact, it is a powerful combination and, and is always a powerful combination when shrewdness and generosity with wealth and, and with people for the sake of eternity are, are brought together. And when they're brought together to keep them together, what is required is something called faithfulness. How would we define faithfulness? Well, Faithfulness, let me put it to you this way. I think this is a good definition. To be faithful is to see and treat all wealth within our reach as coming from God, belonging to God, and necessarily directed by God in its use. To be faithful is to see and treat all wealth within our reach as coming from him, belonging to him, and necessarily directed by him. He chooses what, what happens with the wealth he gives me, not me. I'm just a steward, I'm not an owner. That's what the faithful person sees and understands. And so to encourage our generosity with faithfulness, Jesus shows us a couple of things here. He shows us, first of all, how important faithfulness is to God when it comes to wealth and when it comes to people. And then he explains how faithfulness works in the economy of God. And then finally, he shows us what faithfulness invites from the hand of God. You'll notice first how important uh, faithfulness is to God when it comes to wealth and people. You look in those uh, three verses, you'll see Jesus is using the word faithful over and over and over again. He uses it four times in three verses. It is because God is a very, very interested in our faithfulness. It's something God is after among his people. 
So, it, but, but, but what is most significant is ultimately the kind of faithfulness he wants to find among his people. It's not just a faithfulness in the big things of life, but actually, as, as Jesus says in verse 10, it's faithfulness in every area of life, in all things of life. God wants faithfulness in the little things. God wants faithfulness in the, in, in the, the great things. He wants faithfulness in little. He wants faithfulness in much. And what this means is that God looks for and counts as valuable a faithfulness with whatever a believer has and uses regardless of the amount. A lot of us live our lives saying that if it's little, it doesn't matter what I do with it. God is only concerned about the greater things I have in my life and whether I'm faithful with those. It isn't true. Actually, and in truth, God is as interested in the little things of our lives as he is in the great things of our lives. In fact, he's most interested in finding faithfulness in us in our little things because he knows, and this is what Jesus says, he knows that if we can be faithful in the little things, then we will be faithful in the, in the larger things. But if we can't be faithful in the little things, we will never be faithful in the bigger things. This is what he knows. So, God is really interested in faithfulness when it comes to the small things of life. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but being faithful in the little things is practice for being faithful in the big things. If you can learn to be faithful in the little things when that tragedy comes or when that incredibly good thing comes, you will be practiced up and you will be ready to be faithful with that bigger thing. Does that make sense? I'll never forget when I was a boy, one time my dad and I were in a uh, grocery store and uh, we were shopping for mom. We were just buying, I don't know, stew beef or something. I don't remember. But anyway, it was just, just a little something and we went through the checkout line. This is in the 1960s. And uh, dad hands her some money and she hands him money back with a receipt and off we go. And and we're walking out, and I'll never forget, my dad stopped, looked down at his hand, and he said, she gave me $20 too much change. Well, back in the 1960s, $20 was a lot of money. I mean, you couldn't buy a car with it, but it was a lot of money. And as a little boy, I was going, yeah, that's, that's amazing. I mean, a quarter was big money to me, and dad got $20 free. I thought... Wow, this is amazing. And, you know, dad could have said, wow, she gave me 20 bucks. Well, you know, tough for her. Good for me. He could have said, boy, the Lord is really looking down on me today. I'm so glad he didn't say that. That is not how God works. Because, you know, when, when that happens, guess who has to pay for that? Guess who has to pay for that? But on top of that, guess who's watching that? The God of the universe, for whom honesty and integrity and justice are a big deal. I'll never forget what my dad did. He stopped right where he was. He looked down. He said, she's giving me $20 too much. He said, Steve, come on. I thought we were going out the door. He spun around. He went back and went straight to the, to the woman, the cashier. He said, ma'am, and he laid it all out. Here's my receipt and here's the money. Ma'am, I believe you gave me $20 too much. I was stunned. But I will never forget that day and I'll never forget that moment because my father demonstrated to me faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the little things. He was not going to cut corners. He was not going to take advantage. He was going to do what God said is right always to do. And he taught me with that example the importance of living your faith and taking it seriously at every level that for God, even the small things matter. What I didn't understand that I understand now is that because my father could turn back in a $20 bill 
God could also trust him with far greater and far, far uh, more important things than that. But if he were the kind of person who couldn't, God wouldn't use him. And nor will he use you or me if we cut corners on the little things. Now, now why, why does this matter? Well, because God wants to use us for greater things. In fact, in the, in the economy of God, great things always start small. And if you're going to experience God's greater things and his purposes for your life, then what's got to happen is we've got to demonstrate to him that even with the little things, he can trust us. And every time we're faithful in the little things, what we're saying to God is again and again and again, you can trust me, see? Ultimately, you see, why God values uh, faithfulness so much is that genuine faithfulness is the expression of a heart that's committed to his glory and nothing else. God loves to see faithfulness in us because it is an expression. Uh, it comes from the life of a person who says, I want what you want. I want you to be held high. I want you to be honored. And I want to honor you. And when God sees that, he is blessed. Now, look. In the economy of God, this is how it works. You take small things, you act with faithfulness in those small things out of a desire to, to give God glory and to honor him. If you do that, in God's eyes, God's not really concerned with, with, with the amount, if you will. Some of you, some of you live and believe thinking, well, I'll be faithful once God gives me more money or I'll be faithful once God gives me a bigger house. God doesn't care if you live in an 800 square foot apartment or if you live in an 8,000 square foot house. He, he isn't any more impressed with that 8,000 square foot house than he is with an 800 square foot apartment. He doesn't care. What he does care about is whether that person in that 800 square foot uh, apartment or that 8,000 square foot house, whether they're using that apartment or that house for his glory. If their desire is to bring him glory, what, how However they use that first glory, that becomes for him a great thing. So small things done for his glory are in God's eyes great things. But if you take great things and use them for your own glory, in God's eyes, those are small things. That's how it works in the kingdom of God. He's not impressed with how much money you do have or don't have. He's not depressed by the amount of money you don't have. Maybe I should say it that way. He's neither impressed nor depressed. What he's looking for is not what you have, but what you do with what you have and whether you do with what you have, what, what you do with what you have, whether that's motivated by a desire for him to receive glory. This belongs to you. I'm going to use it to advance your kingdom and your cause. You can take an 800 square foot apartment and use it for God. God's glory, and if God says that's great, then you have arrived. You are living a great life. And this kind of attitude and this kind of approach is to permeate all of our lives. Cheryl and I have been going through renovations in our house, and uh, I'm never doing it again, ever. I'm, I'm, when I'm done, I'm done, and I'm done. Uh, but from the very, I mean, you know, we went through so many building campaigns here. We've been through this campaign, that campaign, and we have given, given, given. You know, sometimes I felt like saying, yes, our house is falling apart, but look, we gave to Jesus. So we've finally been able to go on and do some things. So we're doing them. And, and our prayer has been all the way through this is, Lord, help us to take this house. It belongs to you. Use it for your glory. Let us, let us use this as a tool for the gospel, for the edification of the saints. Let us use this for your glory. And that's been our prayer. So this past Friday, I, I, was, uh, I was at home and uh, was studying downstairs. 
in, in my study and upstairs I had some painters in the house painting. And uh, the dog had to go to the bathroom, so I took him out in the backyard, and I was coming around up onto my driveway, and one of the painters was coming down. I think he was going to wash something out, and he stopped to talk with me a little bit, and, and uh, I started to talk because I was being, you know, kind. And, and he said, do you only work four days a week? I said, well, that's the rumor. Um, I said, uh, I hear you're some kind of preacher. I said, yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I'm some kind of preacher. And um, that's right, that's right. And uh, he, uh, he said, uh, I see. He said, well, he said, you know what? He said, about two years ago, I wouldn't have ever even talked to you. But he said, something's happened to me. And uh, he said, and now I'm, I think I'm about to find God. Now, I've got to be honest with you and say, right at the beginning of that conversation, I'm going, I'm paying you to paint my house not to stand out here in the driveway and talk to me. But then I had a little bit of a check because I was reminded, wait a minute, whose money is this? Oh yeah. And whose house is this? Right. And what are you? Steward. Okay. So I said, okay. Knowing that I'm paying him while we're talking. God's money, God's money, I'm paying him God's... I said, well, tell me about that. And he started to tell me about a journey he'd been on for the last two years of emptiness and brokenness and run-ins with the law and leaving his family and going out, out Midwest and coming back. And uh, he said, I think I'm about to find God. And then it hit me. I, I understood what was going on. In this little conversation, something small. If I were going to steward it well and be faithful, it could become something big. His name was Angel. I said, Angel, has, uh, has, has anybody ever shared the gospel with you? He said, the gospel? I said, the, yeah, the gospel about Jesus. And he said, mm. so I began to unpack the gospel. I said, the gospel is good news. That God sent his son to live a sinless, perfect life, die as a substitute for sinners, be raised again, all so that sinners might be forgiven, be given a new life like his, and have eternal life with repentance from their sin and with faith. That's the gospel. He said, well, I'm, I feel like I'm getting really close to God. And I said, yep, and you will find him in Jesus. You, I'm trying to find out what God is like. And I said, angel, you want to know what God is like? He said, look at me. I'll show you what God is like. I'm trying to find my way to God. I said, angel. Jesus said, I am the way to God. I'm the truth about God. I'm the life from God. And I said, angel, let me ask you a question. What will you do with Jesus? I said, Angel, will you receive Jesus? He said, Yeah. I said, Will you receive him right now? He said, Yeah. And he did. Amen. What I didn't know is that God stood ready if I would be faithful with a little conversation just a little conversation with a guy out on my driveway holding a water hose and me with a dog on a leash. I had no idea, but God stood ready to take that little conversation and open the door of eternal life for Angel. As soon as we were done, he went back to painting God's house with God's money. And I went straight into my library. I found a Bible and I wrote the gospel word for word on the fly leaf in a part of a note. Took two of my business cards, stuck them in two strategic places and said, read this and read that. And I handed it to Angel. Kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? How many angels have I missed? 
because I, I didn't understand that God, when he's growing faithfulness in us, he always starts in the small places. And he asks us to practice in the small places. And he asks us to be faithful in the small places so that he can trust us with the big places. You see, the point of generosity, the ultimate goal of generosity is that we would be faithful. We would be ready to pour out, but always pouring out so that God might gather up what we're pouring out in ways small and large and use them for his glory. Mm. Listen, loved ones, take good, godly, generous care of the small things God gives you. If you will, the greater things will come. Ignore the good godly things that God gives you, the little things, and no greater things will come for you to steward. The generous will be given greater resources to be more generous. The stingy will find that despite what they might have, they do less and become less and impact less and less. For God can't trust them with anything more to be or do. Faithfulness in the small things creates greater opportunities for great things. Do the little and God will provide the great. Listen, if you're longing to do more for Christ, if you're longing to be part of seeing his kingdom come and his will done, if you want to have a hand in seeing evil defeated and good triumph, take whatever you have Take all you have, give it to him, no matter how small or how insignificant it may seem to you. Take your moments and your days, take your pennies and your dollars, take your possessions, all of them. Give those things to him and he will take those things and he will take you and he'll begin to open doors for you to do even greater things. This kind of faithfulness requires faith. So trust him, rely on him, rest on him in the generous giving of all that you have and all that you are. Now I wanna remind you, you can't outgive him and you can't begin to imagine how he's going to use you and your small faithfulness as with wealth for greater, higher things. You can't imagine how you begin to open doors. You cannot now see. Indeed, the alternatives of verses 11 to 12 will become true for you. We could re rewrite them and say, then if you are faithful in the unrighteous wealth, he will entrust to you the true riches now and later. I gotta tell you, I don't know of any greater wealth or any greater joy or any greater delight that I could have had on that Friday or the week or this month than standing there in the heat with angel, listening to him give his life to Christ. And if you're faithful in that which is mine, I will give you a reward and a true wealth which is going to be your own in the life to come. God's heart is that we use our generosity to practice faithfulness. One final thing. Look at verse 13. I want you to see with me that while the goal of shrewdness is generosity and the goal of generosity is, is faithfulness, the goal of faithfulness is always freedom. Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now in ancient days, servants and slaves were a familiar part of the culture. Servants were persons under contract for a specific time to serve an individual so that their time and their focus and their energy was never their own but totally given to another. 
And the key responsibility of any servant was to be so totally dedicated to the wishes and the benefits of the one for whom they worked that they could not conceive of having any other master while they're totally devoted to the one. The very thought of it would have been abhorrent. And this would have been true whether the servant loved the master or not. To try to serve two masters was an incredible, unthinkable burden because in the end, it was impossible. No one can give themselves and all they are to two people at one time. Every disciple hearing this parable would have understood this concept. But then Jesus does the unexpected and he uses the observation to compare the relationship of his disciples with God to their potential relationship with money. God has the power to command and direct our lives. But the reality is so does wealth. So, so do money and possessions. And either one of them, Jesus is saying, can be our masters. And, and God and money can be adversaries because money can take God's place as master and God. Many have and still want to deny what Jesus is saying here. And their denial only goes to prove his point and the urgency of his implicit warning. There's so many followers of Christ through the generations and today who absolutely insist they can serve God and they can serve money. They can pursue money. They can pursue getting it, keeping it, spending it, displaying it. They can pursue that and still pursue God. Jesus says there is absolutely no way. The more money and possessions we disciples have, the more tempted we are to serve them rather than him. We drift from his service and his worship to the service and the practical worship of wealth. We live for it rather than him. We live for getting and keeping and protecting and displaying it. And in the life of, the, of a believer, the presence of wealth in our lives easily means a greater temptation to pride and less humility. It means less prayer because we have less to pray for when it comes to ourselves. It means less dependence on him and greater dependence on ourselves and our wealth for comfort, security, and well-being. The presence of wealth in our lives easily means less hunger for the word and for God's direction. Jesus teaches in Matthew 13, there are believers who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and for them, it proves unfruitful. They can hear the word of God because, but because it doesn't point them, it doesn't help them to get more money, keep more money, use more money, display more money. They're not interested. Presence of wealth in our lives easily means greater temptation to set priorities on the basis of what we want and can get rather than on what God wants and what others need. Now, I want you to notice here that Jesus implies that we can have both money and God, but elsewhere he shows that we can have it only if we're not like the rich man of Mark 10 so possessed by our possessions that the only cure is to give it all away and start over with Jesus. But what Jesus says clearly is this, while you can have both, you can never serve both. It's virtually impossible for any person to be totally committed to financial things and have any hope of serious commitment to Christ. And so Jesus closes with an implied challenge and he says, make up your mind. Make up your mind. Choose whom you will serve, God or money. Make up your mind. Make it up every day. And be sure you know what you're choosing because money is a hard master. It deceives and then enslaves us by making us think it can bring us life. And when we're living for it, living to gain it, use it, protect it, display it, always leads to disappointment. It always leads to self-destruction because once we have it, what we have is never enough. Someone else always has more. It never delivers on what it promises. And we're always under the threat of losing it. Some of the most insecure people I've ever met are people who have a great deal of wealth and they're always afraid somehow it's gonna disappear. 
because it has become for them their lives. We said that the aim or the goal of faithfulness is freedom, and, and it is. Why? Because when we live obediently using wealth for eternity and for people as God desires, rather than living to gain, use, and keep it for ourselves, we're actually set free from it. And we're set free from being mastered by it. The great cure for being enslaved to money is to give it away. Ouch! I could hear the groans all across the room. The great cure for being mastered by possessions is by sharing them or giving them. The only real way to break the power of money if it has become your master is to gather all that wealth up and say, and me, all this is yours. This 800 square foot apartment of mine and the bed on the floor with no frame, all of this is yours, this is not mine. All of this is yours, this is not mine. And I may be just scraping by, but when I come to, to a beggar and they're asking, I remember that Jesus says, give to those who ask of you. The best thing for me to do is reach in my pocket, pull out what I can do, hand it to that beggar. Not only does the beggar need it, I need it. I need to give it because I've got to constantly be reminding myself who the master really is. Who the better master really is. And it is not money. It is Jesus. And I hear Jesus saying, I am the better master. So come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. All you who have spent your lives striving for something that will not satisfy, come to me. Come to me. I'm the better master and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest for your souls. Paul tells Timothy that this kind of life is the only way to have the life that is truly life. It's the only way. It's a life of generosity, a life of faithfulness, a life of freedom from money for Christ. So I have a question for you. What do you have? No, I'm not talking to your neighbor. I'm talking to you. What do you have? 800 square foot apartment? Scooter, no car? Tennis shoes, no scooter. What do you have? Three houses? Four cars? What do you have? You say, that's none of your business. That's fine with me. I don't, I don't really care. But it is God's business, and that's why I'm asking. What do you have? Now, listen carefully. What does God have? See, here's my concern. For so many of us followers of Jesus, we, we've taken a pencil and we've taken all the stuff we have and we've, driven, we've drawn lines around what God can have. We've drawn lines around our time so when angel comes around the concrete, we're saying, man, you need to be upstairs painting because 
I own your time. I'm spending my money. You go paint my house. We've driven really tight lines around our time. Some of us have drawn really tight lines around our money. We, we don't give faithfully to the church. We don't do this. We don't do that. Because what we basically said to God is, that money is mine. Okay, okay. I'll leave a little bitty place just in case there's a hurricane and I'll give some money. We've drawn lines around our possessions. So I'm asking this question. What does God have? Seriously, right now in your life, what is his? That is not yours right now. What do you have? What does God have? Now here comes the hardest question. What should God have that he doesn't have in your life right now? The reason I'm so passionate about this is because time is short. Your finish line is coming and it will be here before you know it. Time and people and history are moving on. This is the time. This is the time for you to take a look at what God has put within your reach. Stop complaining about what you don't have. Stop looking at what everybody else has. Look at what God has put in your care and ask yourself, whose is this? Who gets this? Who decides this? Who decides how this is used? Who decides? I'm telling you, according to Jesus, what we do with this now is going to have implications for eternity later. Your stuff is not for your comfort, not for your well-being, not for your pleasure. Your stuff is for God's glory. It's meant to make an eternity's worth of difference. So the final question is what will you do with God's stuff? How can you use your money and your possessions, your house, your job for the advancement of his kingdom, for the sake of his glory? Lord God, small things are great things in your hands when they're used for your glory. Great things are no thing. Even when they're used in your name, if they're used for the wrong reason. Grant that we would look at what you have given us placed within our reach. Grant, Lord God, that we would be a people who are genuinely committed to being generous, not stingy. Who get out, are willing to get out an eraser and stop drawing lines around what you can have and what you can't have. Make us a people, Lord God, who are faithful. Make us a people who are free. Make us a people who make an eternity's worth of difference in this very brief time that we're here with the temporary things we love so much.
but we will not always have. Father, I pray for those who are here today who, like Angel, are looking for God, looking for you, need to find you in Jesus. I pray that today would be the day that, like him, they would say yes to the gift of your son, that they would say yes to repentance, that they would say yes to trusting Jesus. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.